This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Thomas Moore. Thomas has been a monk, a university professor, and a psychotherapist. His work focuses on developing a deepening spirituality, as well as the act of cultivating the soul in everyday life. Thomas is the author of the best-selling book, Care of the Soul, and in 2004 released a book called Dark Nights of the Soul, a guide to finding your way through life's ordeals. Beginning on October 28th, Thomas will begin a three-part online event series at Sounds True called Gifts of a Dark Night, dealing effectively in times of loss and trial, where he'll discuss periods of loss or failure that we all endure while offering advice and guidance on how to navigate these difficult times. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Thomas and I spoke about the danger of sentimentalizing the spiritual life, the fear of living versus the fear of death, and what it means to live with care. Here's my conversation with Thomas Moore. Tom, you've written widely and wildly on the life of the soul, and yet of all the different topics you've touched on, I want to talk with you about this idea of our darkness and dark passages in our life and difficulties. And the reason that I want to talk to you about this topic is that it seems to me that it's an area of great confusion. Not that we couldn't find other areas of great confusion, but an area that I see at least that a lot of people get very confused about, that they somehow feel that they're failing in their spiritual quest in some way when they go through hard times. And I'm wondering, just to begin, if you can talk directly about that, your view of that. There are several things going on. One is that a lot of times, I think we we tend to sentimentalize the spiritual life. Uh, We make it look wonderful and only wonderful. Uh, And therefore, when bad times come along, we think we've failed, that somehow we should be in a place where these things don't happen or... Um, that we should be able to handle them very easily. And that's not the way life works. So I think that's really a a great difficulty for people who are particularly interested in a spiritual life, that uh, uh, it would help if they could um, think about it uh, quite realistically so that they might see that, that from the very beginning that there's no such thing as a perfectly sweet life. I mean, some people have sweeter lives than others, but uh, uh, I don't know anyone who has a totally perfect life. And if we could just accept that to begin with, I think we'd be way ahead of the game so that when bad things came along, we wouldn't be shocked and wouldn't judge ourselves so much and be more likely to be able to handle it. It does seem that there's an idea that enlightenment or spiritual liberation or something like that will deliver us from our suffering. So then when we suffer, we think, well, you know, I met something's gone wrong. What's your view of that? 
the, the, the spiritual life might bring us further in the suffering, actually, because uh, I, think, I think when we're doing it well, uh, we're, we're willing to be open to life, to let life happen. I think there's a lot that goes on in the uh, ordinary person's life where they re- where they really don't allow um, the the possibilities of their lives to even take place. I mean, one way I sometimes think of it is that uh, a lot of people say that uh, fear of death is really at the root of a lot of problems. But my experience tells me that fear of life, fear of living, is at the root of our problems. Because life is like this uh, river of time and events that just pours through us all the time. And it's always changing. And um, a change involves suffering. Uh, I mean, let's say that uh, someone is uh, quite successful at a job. I've heard this story many times. People successful at a job. But something in them feels dissatisfied. And that dissatisfaction, this may be a sign that, that life wants something more, something different. And so uh, eventually the person may have to say, well, I've got to leave this job behind now and take a leap into the unknown and see what's going to happen next. I talk to a lot of people who have gone through that experience. Now, I think that even though it's painful and there's a lot of suffering and fear and anxiety around it, it means that you're willing to live rather than to defend yourself against life. So I think that's really a key ingredient of this whole thing. Those people who are willing to live instead of just remain static are going to have um, maybe more challenges and have to go through more pain than others. So when you're referring to fear of life, you mean the, the fear that if I really open up to the life that's moving through me, that things are going to change. My job yes. might change. My relationship might change. I might start exactly. acting in new ways, and who knows what's going to happen. Who knows what's going to happen next? That's right. And we can't, we can't, I don't think any of us can't take everything. You can't just be constantly changing and and letting life pour through too much. I mean, we have to sort and pick and choose. And Maybe that's what we mean by by uh, living our own lives and making decisions and shaping our own lives. Uh, but the, I think it's certainly possible, and I think the majority of people do this, it's, it's possible to uh, just, just say no to life and say, well, everything's in place, I'm not going to move. Uh, you know, now I'm, I'm making a good living, I've got, I've got health insurance, <laughs> all these things that keep us stuck. And then the problem is, I think, is that the, the result of not living and not facing the potential pain involved in changing, is that we begin to feel lifeless. And maybe even that there's a certain kind of depression. I think there's a depression that is related to this. It's not a deep, black, dark depression, but it's it's a feeling that you're just floating along in life and that nothing really is important, nothing gives you much pleasure. That kind of feeling that can lead easily to uh, addiction or lead to... Um, to hopelessness, so I, I think it's essential to be able to 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 uh, accept life as it presents itself and the opportunities it presents, because if you don't, you're going to suffer the consequences there as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned to you, Tom, why I was curious and committed to this topic of exploring our passages through difficult times. What was your inspiration for writing the book, Dark Nights of the Soul? What was happening in your life, or, or why did 
this constellate in you as a book you wanted to write? Well, I think it started when uh, I, uh, I was practicing therapy with a great uh, deal of attention and uh, and um, I'd spent a lot of time at it. I mean, in recent years, I've been writing mainly, but there was a period when I was really doing therapy every day. And people were coming to me with uh, with depression, different forms of depression, and um, obviously a lot of challenges in life and a lot of suffering. And I thought that one of the difficulties is that they were thinking of themselves in t- typical psychological terms. So there must be something wrong. If only I could understand it, this will go away. Um I must, you know, must find. I must find some way to live better, and I didn't think that was a very good approach. So I wanted to change the language. I wanted to move away from depression, and move move away from uh, other language we have that is psychological, and and that's when I thought of. I was reminded that years ago I had read John of the Cross, who was a mystic, who wrote a poem called "Dark Night of the Soul," and. Then he wrote a commentary on his poem, The Dark Night of the Soul. And he had difficulties in his life himself. Now, he was writing primarily to mystics, so people who take their spiritual life very, very seriously. And he was writing to them and trying to help them navigate a mystical life. But I thought that what he said about that kind of life could also apply to ordinary people or us ordinary folks trying to get through life. And so what I did was apply some of his insights to um, to what I was seeing as a psychotherapist. So when you say that you were working with people and they came in with this idea, like, I hope this therapy solves my problem, uh, isn't that what most people want? Well, yes, and I think that's legitimate. Yes, we want to we want to deal with the problem. It's not that the problem is the issue is how do I solve the problem? Uh, do I solve the problem of life once and for all? I mean, if 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 you think well, if I get rid of this problem, then I'm going to be happy. It just isn't true because suffering is part of life. So what it's more important to 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 come to a, a place where you can uh, deal with life more realistically and learn how to navigate uh, the various challenges that are presented and to have, a, I think, a much richer, uh, more realistic, um, more intelligent view of what life is so that uh, you don't keep bouncing back and forth between happiness and sadness because that's kind of a, it's kind of a bipolar way of living. You know, you, you, you can't be in one place and, and feel... Um, feel that life is going to settle some. I, I, I personally, I guess a lot of this has to do with my own experience. My feeling is that um, um, that I, had to, I have come to accept life as being complicated and difficult and having some suffering and some joy and some very plain, ordinary days of where things don't seem to be either high or low. And living that way, I, I find anyway to be ultimately more satisfying because it allows me to be creative, which gives it its own rewards. And um, so I wanted to bring that some of that attitude to the people that I was working with. And I wanted to write about it because most of the books I see, 
either ignore the dark side of life or they look for quick and easy solutions to it. Now, it's interesting that you said that not polarizing into either happiness or sadness, but accepting and being with all of the terrain of life has allowed you to be, quote-unquote, creative. And I wonder if you can talk more about that. I, I could see someone else say, well, I accept all of my life, but I'm not particularly creative. What is in it for you that has led to this creative outpouring, which I definitely feel, Tom, in looking at your life and seeing the prolific nature of your writing? When I look at my own life, I I see a lot of uh, challenges from the very beginning. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a traditional Catholic family, and um, there were, I was pretty much educated at the beginning, told to be someone who didn't uh, that was not visible, you know, that remained quiet in the background and and never, never complained and never did anything remarkable. Sort of, you know, just sort of uh, um, remained quiet. That was really kind of the principle, the main principle. And you had to be this good person, you know, and not do anything that would have said anyone in the least. That's a that's a challenge. That's a handicap <laughs> to begin with, emotionally anyway. And so. It's taken me many years to deal with with that uh, uh, material at the very beginning. Um, and so for me, maybe it's not true of everybody, but for me it makes sense that if I can deal with some of these challenges that are there that make life unpleasant and unhappy at times and really drive me crazy at others, if I can deal with those, it frees me up then to, to be able to use my talents to do what will give me a deep satisfaction Creativity, creative work gives me at least a, a, a deep satisfaction. I think it does, does for most people. And I'd rather have that kind of satisfaction than some kind of happiness that means that I don't feel pain or I don't feel any conflict in life. But Tom, I can imagine someone who says they're suffering in some way. Maybe they're depressed or they're down in some way. And the last thing that feels like it's rising in them is a creative force. That's not what's happening. You know, they're down. Uh, what I'm saying, though, is that I think that uh, if you can uh, look at life as being more complicated and that your vision of life, and here's a point that I make in my my book that I, I think is key. You develop a philosophy of life. That is, you think things through and you have a sense of values and you have a, something of a plan to deal with life. And if you include uh, difficulties and include, uh, you, you expect that life is going to have challenges in it and changes and that there will be uh, frequent moments of, uh, of confusion and pain, then I don't think you go down into these deep places uh, so much. And so it's possible to be creative when life is that is that mixture of things. I think it's quite difficult when you when you have to more or less surrender when the depression and the sadness overwhelms you. Then it's very difficult to be creative. In fact, most people have told me that when they are feeling depressed, one of the characteristics of that place is that you just don't have any energy to be creative and you don't have the will to do it. And you also have this feeling that it will never go away, so it's rather a double depression there. You're depressed, and then you're depressed about being depressed. 
So uh, it's a difficult thing to deal with. And I think that part of it has to do with uh, with the fact that um, that we don't look at life in its complexity. We we expect happiness all the time, really. We expect to be happy. We think that's the normal state to be in. And I'm trying to suggest that happiness is not the normal state. Mm-hmm. But do you think that simply expecting and accepting that there will be these dips, there will be these periods of loss and grief, that that's enough to keep one out of these deep pitfalls of depression? Just that? It's not enough, but it goes a long way. Uh-huh. It goes a long way I, I, because there are a couple of things about that. First of all, I get an, there's an idea I got from my friend James Selman many years ago, a long, long time ago. He said that uh, in conversation once that uh, he felt that a lot of our depression comes from the fact that we have such a spirited society. They were talking about American society now. Uh, we we expect to be happy. We uh, we are dedicated to the pursuit of happiness. We have all kinds of uh, messages around us telling us that that we should be happy, and if we're not, we better do something about it and get back on track quickly. And that, he says, creates depression itself because and it makes it worse because uh, because that's our expectation and that's the environment we live in. I think that there's a lot of truth in that. So what I'm suggesting, first of all, here is that we, if we could have a vision of life that is more true to its nature, that it is a complex mix of happiness and sadness and challenge, all of these things, and our philosophy of life then goes along with that, then we, we um, I think we become more even-tempered as a result and don't have these dips and don't go high and low quite as much. I mean, that's, that, that, so that's a start. I don't, I'm not saying that's going to solve the problem entirely, but that certainly is, a, I think it's a major part of the whole picture. Uh, the, another, there are other parts then. I mean, uh, some people will find some benefits from finding the roots of their depression. A lot of them go back a long way. They go back to, uh, to earlier experiences, uh, to influence of other people, to, uh, uh, to childhood. And so it's really worth looking at all those things. What I do in my own practice, uh, I, to, in order to find out what kind of darkness is in a person's life, I, I look closely at their dream life and I look... I, I, I find signs there of patterns that I think uh, help shed some light on the de- on the depression or the sadness, whatever it is, the conflict. And so that's very useful. Um, and then it, you have, you have something then that you can reconsider. And just being able to reframe your story then is also part of uh, the healing and and the part of uh, being able to live uh, in a life that is maybe maybe has its challenges and difficulties, but uh, you're not undone by them. You can go ahead and and uh, and live your life, even though these things are going to be there for you to deal with. Mm-hmm. What I'm curious about is in your own life, linking up this philosophy of life that you're talking about and your rich creative life. How that syncs up for you. Well, it, it links together in a couple of ways. One is that um, 
I I have a great deal of empathy for people who are going through suffering. I mean, I've you know I've had uh, I've had to deal with things myself. I mean, they're not maybe not the same. Maybe in many instances, not as as uh, powerful as other people have. But at least I've had my own. I have my own fate and uh, things that I have had to deal with. And having confronted them and uh, come to a certain level of peace, and as I was saying before, being able to be creative, um, but my creativity to some extent, the particular nature of it is to deal with those difficulties. So I write about them. I write a book called Dark Nights of the Soul, uh, because um, partly because I, I, I know what it's like. I've been there, and I would like to write about it almost... I mean, part of my creative effort is part of my own therapy. I, uh, writing Dark Nights of the Soul was very helpful for me personally to write it, to just to go through it, that experience. And I hope that that's one reason why it's useful to somebody else, because it's genuine. I'm not sitting back saying I have some answer to these things and you poor people don't know the answers. Uh, it's not that at all. I struggle with this. I've gone through uh, these things and... I write about them. I think I have found a way to deal with them that is useful. And so that gives me the creative material and gives me the energy to do it and the motive to do it. So that's a very big part of it, a part of being creative at the very time that you feel, that I feel um, some of the struggles that I've had to deal with. Mm -hmm. In your book, Care of the Soul, the, the book that really put you I guess, on the public map in in many ways, there's a chapter on the gifts of depression. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, what you see as depression's gifts. I got this idea that uh, of the gifts of depression from my studies. Uh, I'm a person who learns a lot from books. Um, my family makes fun of me because I learn everything from books. I, I tell them I learn how to swim from books, you know, everything. Um and I, I studied uh, depression and, and dealing with difficulties and, and darkness in life. I studied, looked it up, and I found in writing almost a thousand years ago, people were talking about the same issue. And they're the ones, these writers a thousand years ago, who talked about being in a sad place, in a dark place. They called it being in Saturn because they tend to uh, use poetic imagery at that time. They said it's like being in Saturn, which was this mythological figure of sadness and and uh, struggle. Um, but but they, all, they said that if you can endure Saturn, if you can stay with Saturn, that you will get benefits from this. And they, they limit, they listed the benefits. Uh, one of them, they said, is that you can age better that this is one of the gifts of Saturn. You you mature more. So, and I think this is true, that uh, I think one of the big problems with American society is that its citizenry is not as mature as it could be. We tend to be rather adolescent for a very long time, and our whole culture has this adolescent spirit to it. And visitors come here, and they're kind of shocked, I think, when they first come to see this, this kind of a spirit that is very innocent and almost like it hasn't grown up. And so Saturn can give us, uh, or being having to deal with conflict in life can mature us. We go through these rites of passage and we become gradually 
more and more mature about life. That doesn't mean we become sadder. It means that we we have a bigger picture, a deeper picture of what's going on, a more complicated view of ourselves and the life that we're living. That is a good thing, and that's one of the gifts of Saturn, to age well and to mature. Another thing they said was that Saturn is particularly good for artists. In fact, there's a book called Born Under Saturn, that uh, harkens back to those medieval writings that say that artists are born under Saturn, meaning that they they have this dark view of life from the beginning. And you find so many artists and so many writers and, and musicians who have a very dark approach to life. And somehow that is connected to their art. Their art gets its depth and its substance from the fact that they do not have this innocent adolescent view of life. It's given to them. So so there are two, those are two very big things that I learned just by going into the past. And I, I don't just say they're true because someone said it. I think about uh, my own life and the lives of the people that I've counseled over the years, and I see this. I do see that going through a challenge and going through a depressive time can make them more mature people, people who are, who live from a deeper place and have a deeper sort of happiness when they come out of it. And actually, of course, they never fully come out of it because part of dealing with the darkness is to come to grips with it and see it as part of life. So you never just completely pull out of it, but you learn how to live with it. And I've also worked with a lot of artists because I'm a musician and I'm a writer. Um, I'm married to a painter, uh, I have a strong affinity for the artist. I think it's in my nature anyway to, to love the artist. And I've seen so many artists over the years who I think have um, um, have proven this principle that uh, the, the difficulties they have and the dark periods they have gone through have actually helped their art and have allowed them to be successful artists. And you, you look at the art of people like people who have this kind of a very sunny view of life, and you look at their art, and it, again, it's it's too childish. It doesn't have the edge that art requires. So, Tom, I'm definitely following you in that I can think of people that I know who have really wrestled with themselves, with life, and I can see both their maturity and I can see in other people how it informs their art. But I also see people who have been crushed by Saturn and who are sort of still still being crushed and maybe as they age become bitter or cranky or stay depressed. What's the difference? How come some people receive Saturn's gifts and others remain under and crushed? Well, it's a very, the, the answer to that is, uh, is one word for me, and that is therapy. But let me explain what I mean. I don't mean everyone should go into therapy as we know it today. Uh, therapy means, uh, I don't mean, when I use the word, I don't mean just uh, the institution of psychotherapy. What I mean is some sort of caring of attention to psychological attention. Uh, attent- I, I use the word soul, so I would say care of soul, you know, the soul care involved so that we do something with our depression and our darkness and not just let it go on unconsciously and let it rule us forever. I mean, there has to be some response to it. So uh, people who don't go to therapy, I think therapy is one route, 
But people who don't do that may find solution elsewhere. They, they, I know a lot of people who feel very, very dark in their lives, and they decide to change their jobs or career. And that is enough to turn them around. They, they become different people because they've they've moved in a different direction. I've known people who have been whose whose the darkness and depression and and despondency in life is due to their marriage, and it isn't until they get out of a marriage that they rediscover their lives. I've seen that happen uh, many times. Uh, so that's uh, it's a kind of a therapeutic move in some way. Both of these things, other people to take on some sort of a practice. So they enter a spiritual uh, group or community, or they they follow a particular spiritual path, and that becomes their way of dealing with with the hardship and the difficulties and the depressive view. If you don't do something, then it's going to swamp you. That's just the way it works. So we have to find we have to find ways. That's why I called my book "Care of the Soul." A lot of people focus on the word "soul." I focus a lot on the word "care." And I take the word care as something very active, something that's very important to do. And and so um, uh, all my work is devoted to responding to these dark uh, moments. How do you deal with them? Don't let don't let them just happen. Don't let them just be there. Uh, do something with them. And there there's a quite quite a wide range of what you can do. Um, and so that's what I really have spent most of my life doing, trying to explore all the different ways that we can respond to our dark nights. I love your use of the word care. Uh, you write it in the book, Dark Nights of the Soul, give yourself care rather than cure, mm-hmm. focusing on care. But the question I have, I mean, to care, to give myself care, I have to have some kind of positive regard. I mean, there's already a kind of positivity in my willingness to give myself care. And then you mm-hmm. can make a hundred of suggestions, some of which you just mentioned, whether it's switching right. your job or developing a spiritual practice or whatever. But what about when you're in that place where you don't feel caring towards yourself? Well, that's part of the problem then. That's part of the issue itself. Yeah. That's part of the suffering. I think what happens, I mean, this is a funny way to put it. I don't think I've ever said this before but it's it's as though life itself offers us constantly offers us opportunities to wake up out of where we are to to um to see the possibility of of doing something else uh you know there's so many stories of people who have been in a very despondent and and difficult depressed place and maybe they they see like the Buddha. They 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 happen to a friend gets uh, cancer, and so they visit them in the hospital, and they wake up to the fact that their own life is is just going by, and they say, "Well, I can't do this. I've got to do something about it now." They wake up. There's a wakening process. In fact, I've wanted for years to write a book on waking up because this is really an important part of the process. What What is it that makes you wake up and not just remain forever in that sleep where you you don't have even the impetus to care for yourself? There has to be something to wake you up. Usually it comes from outside. Uh, as I say, you, you, you look at somebody who's worse off than you are, or you look at someone who's let the, their their life just go by, and you wake up and say, well, I'm not going to do that. Or you might see 
a, a symbol or an image of it. You might see a child. Uh, a lot of people wake up because of children. They they either they have children and they want to give their best to their children, or they see a child's life and they realize that that's me, and they think of their own childhood, and they say, well. I don't want to squander this gift of life that I've been given. I'm going to do something about this now. I'm not going to keep going the way that I have been for all this time. Or they may have a friend that tells them, a friend, you know, a good friend that says, look, uh, you're, you're letting life go by. Do something about it. And they may have a friend who gives them some chances and say, I know someone you can talk to. Or uh, why don't you come with me? I'm going on a trip to, you know, the, to uh, Africa or something. And um, travel, actually, is quite an interesting source of waking up. Um, those people who maybe they don't travel because they've suddenly realized they want to get on with life, but just opportunity comes along. And they go somewhere and they see how people are living and they, they encounter some extraordinary people and they say, well, you know, I, I, have, to, I have to change. So life gives us all kinds of signals uh, where we can wake up. And a lot of times we let them go by. We don't pay attention to them. Sometimes uh, they're so strong that we can't do anything else but pay attention to them. I think being alert to the to what life has to offer is part of the waking process. I love that. It's almost like we're in partnership with this bigger force that's surprising us all the time. Exactly. Now, you said something really interesting, that your family teases you, you know, that you learn to swim through reading. Right. And uh, I'm interested in this because I've been very committed to speaking from my own experience. And I notice that when I read things in books, I think, you know, whatever, if it, I need to always test everything in my own experience. So it's very curious to me to hear that you learn and gather so much wisdom from reading about other people's experience. And, and I'm curious how you sort out what you read? Well, usually I can tell very quickly if I look at a book um, that uh, within a few sentences uh, whether this is going to, this is some, something that is part of this uh, adolescent uh, approach to to life that's around uh, the spiritual writing especially has a lot of that s- sentimental writing that I can, you catch it right away, you see it in the language and uh, there's no there's no edge there's no darkness to it it's all bright and sunny i i just don't read any of those books that come from the sunshine only uh, and there may be some maybe there's a good book in there somewhere but it's not worth it for me to sort it out because i just that, so that that gets rid of a good, you know half half of the books that that make their appearance to me uh and then the other stuff um the other material that I read, I go from one to another. I read one book, and I've, like, for example, I, I've been heavily influenced by Jung and by uh, James Hillman, uh, a Jungian writer. And uh, reading them, uh, these are two people who who have been like me. They've been readers who read uh, sources, and they read a lot of things. Very, 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 very widely read. So between the two of them, I have a huge amount of reading to do. Uh, you know, just from those two writers alone, I have found a whole bibliography that would take me half my life to read. So I, I pursue those things. Um, there are certain philosophies that I know if I can, if I stick with and read over and over again, are going to uh, 
give me what I need. For example, I, I read the Tao Te Ching probably three or four times a year, maybe more than that. Uh, the uh, basic texts from Taoism in China, to me it has, it has more wisdom packed into just uh, maybe 50 or 70 pages uh, than many, many books. So I find that and I read it and read it and read it because it takes me a lot, a long time to really get it. I still don't get it. You know, I have to read it over and over again to to re- be reminded of what uh, of all the wisdom that's there. I read a lot of uh, books on Zen Buddhism for the same reason because it, uh, I rarely find a book on Zen Buddhism that doesn't give me something important. Um, I read um, certain poets that I know are going to be strong, and I reread them and reread them. Uh, D. H. Lawrence, for example, or Emily Dickinson, and Anne Sexton, and Wallace Stevens, and Rilke. Rilke, I, I couldn't imagine my life without reading Rainer Maria Rilke. Uh, I'm always getting, I'm reading the same poems all the time of his, and I, I'm always getting something from them. So I have a kind of my own resources that I go to. And I get a new book that's just been written that comes across my desk, and this happens almost every single day. I get a new book sent in the mail to me for one reason or another. And I I look at those, and um, most of it I see right away doesn't have the substance that my my own library, you know, that these books I was talking about have. Once in a while I suspect, well, maybe there's something there, and I'll, I'll look into it. But... Um, as a result, most of my reading is is of old stuff, and the and classic things, and the classic uh, spiritual books, especially, and poets, and um, uh, things that I know I can trust. It sounds like reading for you is part of your care of the soul for you. There's no question about it. Now, you know, I lived 13 years of my early life in a monastery, so I was taught when I was 13 years old. Uh, I was taught that reading is a spiritual practice. They called it Lexio Divina, divine reading. You know, and I learned that when I was 13, and I was encouraged to read uh, for that in that way from that time on. You know, for like for 13 years uh, daily, uh, we had it built into our schedule in this monastic life. Uh, right, reading that was intended to be spiritual reading. And um, we were encouraged to find, you know, really good good writers. So this is something I learned. It's not natural. It's something I learned, and I learned it very early on in my life. And um, ever since I left the monastery, it's been an ideal for me to create a secular life and a family life that has monastic values in it. And one of those values is reading. Mm-hmm. Now, Care of the Soul was written almost 20 years ago. And I know you're working on a a new book, writing a new book, that's also about the life of the soul. And I'm curious if any of your views have changed over the last two decades and what those might be. It's a very good question. Basically, my thinking hasn't changed much. There was a period in my life up to... I don't know, probably up to, I would say, 1980, when I felt I was discovering. I was discovering so much. And especially, um, well, there are certain people that appeared in my life and certain writers that appeared to to me 
over the years, and it was exciting to discover them and to read them and just uh, take so much from them. So I had a long period of time where I was absorbing so much with a great deal of excitement, new things all the time. Then then it, that sort of changed. Um, at a certain point, I, uh, that, that, uh, that stopped happening. Not entirely, but I'd say it's changed dramatically. So now what I I don't feel that same feeling that I'm discovering these new new things for uh, constantly. Um so when I published Care of the Soul um I put a lot of my a lot of things I had learned through those exciting years. Since then I I'd say that those ideas have been confirmed and I don't think that there's been a lot of change. Uh uh, there's, I don't think there's anything, trying to think of it now, I don't think there's anything in care of the soul that I would want to rewrite. I can't think of anything. There are the earlier books I wrote that I, I'd want to change because my, my positions have changed, but not, not care of the soul. So uh, I have learned a lot, though. I've learned a lot over the years because I've had to give lectures on this material so often, and I've spoken at so many different venues and bookstores and churches and schools, I mean, just, you know, hospitals, so many different venues. And I've learned a lot. I've learned um, I've learned a lot concretely about what it means to care for your soul in different situations. So that has been a new learning for me. I've learned a lot from people. They've given me a lot of ideas, um, but uh, the, the, the essentials have not changed at all. Can you give me a couple examples of concrete situations that have crystallized for you in the more recent years? How you would approach them? Sure. I um, one of the things I didn't know when I first wrote Care of the Soul was that what I was writing had a great deal of relevance to people who were sick and being treated for illness. As soon as the book was published, I began getting letters and phone calls from medical schools and hospitals and cancer centers asking me to come and talk to them, talk to the staff, the patients, and their families. I learned a lot there that I didn't even, I didn't have a clue about it. I, I wondered what I was going to do when I went first went to these places. But um, I've continued. Uh, now I've spent almost 20 years, uh, I'd say a third of my work has been in the medical field. Hmm, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yes, and uh, and I recently published a book called Care of the Soul in Medicine, and uh, so I'm and I'm planning on doing even doing even more work now with uh, with the medical world. So that was something I didn't have I didn't have a clue that uh, that I was going to be connected with. Again, my uh, I I uh, I'm aware within myself and my family teases me about this too that. Uh, I sort of am a frustrated surgeon or something. There's something in me that loves the medical profession. And I really like being in hospitals and, and doing work there. And you are, you are, you are twisted now, Tom. I'm now convinced. I am. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, pray tell, do you like about being in hospitals? Uh, I like the... Um, I like so much about it. I like the... Uh, uh, I, I, there's something that's deeply satisfying to me about being able to deal with people in distress. So uh, being a psychotherapist for 30 years, I, 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 it's not too different from that, except it's at the physical realm mainly rather than the emotional. 
Um, but even as a therapist, I've really enjoyed working with people who are really psychotic. I mean, people are really out of it. I, I've been able to work with people like that and enjoy it and get somewhere with them. So there's something in me that loves the pathological and um, finds it challenging and interesting. I don't, I don't want to change it. I don't want to. I mean, I do want to help people, uh, get, you know, deal with their suffering and this kind of thing. But what I mean is, I. I can appreciate it uh, somehow. So when I go to a hospital and I see people having to deal with all of these illnesses, I find it very interesting. I'm, I'm drawn into it. I could see that a, I can see the work of a doctor or a nurse being very fascinating, uh, being able to have empathy for people who are going through a lot of suffering and then trying to figure out what can I do about this? How can I help it? How can I make people... Um, be, how can I help them be relieved of their suffering? And that's it's a challenge. I just did this this morning. I did an hour of psychotherapy with someone, and it was. I felt as I was sitting there with this man. I thought I I'm uh, like a detective, and I love detective mysteries. I can understand why because we're trying to sort out what's going on in this life that has something has gone on that has caused some suffering. Well, what is that thing? And I hear these hints when he talks. I hear little hints that he doesn't notice. He says things and doesn't even pay attention to them, and I pick up on them. And I ask him to elaborate on these these points. And suddenly there, you can see the revelation. You can see the look of discovery in his eyes as we look at these things and go deeper into them. So... There is that whole aspect of uh, of medicine and uh, psychotherapy that satisfies me uh, at a very deep level. Let's say for a moment, Tom, that someone's listening who is suffering from an illness, and they've heard our conversation and have a philosophy of life that accepts the fact that their illness is happening, but still that person feels a a tremendous sense of loss and maybe even fear for their life. Uh, maybe they they don't relate so much to what you said earlier in the conversation, a, a fear of life that's disturbing them as much as a fear of death that's actually disturbing them. What could you say to that person based on the work you've been doing with the care of the soul in medicine? Well, I would say, first of all, that... Um uh, that the, you're talking, you're talking there about um, the soul and, and the, uh, an illness. You're talking about anxiety and fear and death and feelings of mortality. And uh, there's so many other issues that come up: emotional issues, uh, issues of relationship, of meaning, of work. Uh, just a host of issues, human issues that come up when we get sick. And we bring them with us when we go to a doctor or to a hospital. They're part of us, and we're full of those thoughts and feelings. And yet our medical uh, profession is trained only to deal with the body as though the body were separate from all these other things. Well, I've learned very dramatically in my work as a therapist that you can't separate these things. I mean, I, I know that intellectually, but I've seen it that when people deal with their emotional life physically, they can get better. I've seen I've seen things vanish overnight, you know, physical problems vanish overnight because of conversation. So I know that there's a close relationship between care of the soul and care of the body. And so I would say to a person like this that, um, 
Yes, I fully appreciate the boy. There's no one that gets more afraid of your mortality than I do and has more anxiety. I really feel it. Um, but I think that if we, if you're sick and that's what's going on, um, uh, then we can deal with that by, uh, by talking. Talking is the, is the cure of the soul really. And, uh, conversation and, uh, and relationship and encounter and engagement. So, on one side, I go to hospitals and I try to convince doctors and nurses of the importance of conversation with their patients and of seeing their patients as human beings and of seeing themselves as human beings and being present as a human being. That's a big part of what I do in the hospitals and medical schools. And I get a lot of resistance to it, but I keep I keep talking about it. And then with patients I would and families, I would say something similar is that um, be present. Uh, express your your fears. Uh, let people know about them. Let people know you're a human being. Uh, they're gonna. Tr- they may treat you as an object because that's how they were educated to deal with your body. Don't let them do it. Be present as a human being always. Treat the, your doctor and your nurse and other people as real people too, and maybe they will learn from you to treat you that way. You mentioned working with people one-on-one yourself, talking with people and how important it is that we talk with others, we express ourselves. And, and even the, the one word that you gave, uh, therapy, in terms of the difference in how people might deal with difficulties, of course, you defined it extremely broadly. But, you know, there's a, there's a view now that I'm sure you've heard that, you know, talk therapy doesn't really change people. We don't really transform by talking with a, a therapist about our problems. What do you think about that? Well, aside from the fact that it's just completely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's wrong. Uh, because I think what it does, it represents the philosophy of our time, which is to be factual and to and we we trust medications and we trust anything we can measure. We're materialistic in that regard. The society is materialistic. And so talk is not materialism. Talk is, it has to do with the, uh, the spirit and soul, so it's something else. Um, I, I just don't believe it, I, and I, I've, I've, I've made it my life work to wherever I go to speak in favor of the spirit and of the soul and never to fall into that materialism. It's everywhere, but I, I speak against it constantly, and I don't care. I go into these medical places, and people sometimes don't want me there. You know, they, they uh, a lot of people uh, resent it, and uh, they think that I'm somehow um, complaining and I'm criticizing them. I mean, they get very, very sensitive to it. And I don't care um, because I, th- I think that uh, this is going to kill us, this materialism. So I, I make it my, my life work, uh, and I, I like being identified with this role. People know if they're going to invite me somewhere, I'm not going to sit back and let that materialistic viewpoint go unchallenged. So um, I, I just don't believe it. On the other hand, my own experience is that this is changing. There was a period, even just 10 years ago, where I think people were disparaging talk therapy. But um, I'm getting picking up uh, a, a turn now back toward realizing the importance of it. I mean, I teach psychiatrists uh, every, about three times a year. I teach a group of maybe 100 psychiatrists. I used to get, 10 years ago, I used to get psychiatrists who didn't have any time for what I was talking about. Uh, Even people in my audiences would stand up and yell and scream and complain. 
but um, the, I don't see that anymore. People are very interested in going back to a kind of talk therapy. In fact, they want to go further. They, the, the psychiatrists are very interested in, uh, in what the spiritual traditions have to, have to uh, contribute. Well, it seems that this critique of talk therapy comes from a couple of different angles. One is, as you're saying, the materialistic view, but the other is people who say, you know, I I went and saw a therapist for X number of years and I didn't really change. Just talking about my problems didn't really create change. Maybe I need a more body-centered approach or something that's not just going to be me, you know, flapping my lips about it. (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, I still... Uh, yeah, I, I still hold my ground. Um, uh, the pr- one problem might be what you just said is that people are looking for a kind of change. Yeah, see, I don't see the point in therapy as change. I really don't. Um, and I, I, I guess I have a, you know, I, I do have a very anachronistic view of therapy. I, I think everyone should be in therapy. That would be great if there were good therapists for them. That's that's one thing. Secondly, I don't think that therapy ever ends. So you don't go into therapy with this problem and the, you get rid of the problem and you change, you change your personality and you leave. That's not what it's about. It's care. It's not change. It's not cure. It's care. It's an ongoing care so that you're always throughout your life looking at your life and being able to gain some insight and move through your life more gracefully. That's what it's about. I don't think it's about changing your nature or anything like that. The man I worked with I was mentioning today is, um, I think he's uh, he's 80 years old, and uh, uh, he's he's interested, he's not interested in change. He's interested in, in, in living a graceful, uh, beautiful life, uh, you know, with, with the time he has left. And I think that's a wonderful motive for therapy. Mm-hmm. So I just have one final question for you, Tom. You've told me two things that your family teases you about, and I've found them the most interesting, actually, just at a personal level about our our conversation. Uh, So I'm curious if you can tell me one third thing that your family teases you about. Sure. That's easy. They call me Mr. Magoo. Uh, I'm pretty oblivious to what's going on in the world around me. Um, I live in another time and space really, in so many ways. I mean, I spend so much time reading and, and writing. I love to write. Uh, it's such an internal thing. And uh, as a result, when I go out into the world, I, I don't know what century I'm in half the time. And uh, I'm not too I'm not too good at it. You know, I don't handle the world too well. I'm not very sociable. I don't know what to talk about too well. Fortunately, when I go out to give lectures and things, people are there to hear me. And I they, they, they're looking at this person that they know from the books, and it's not really me, so I can do that pretty easily. <laughs> but um, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not Mr. Magoo. I, I just, you know, bump into things and don't handle the world too well. And I don't worry about it too much, really. I, I mean, I, at times I do when I have to deal with, you know, I'm like I'm not good dealing with money, but I have to do that. I try to force myself. Um, things like that, but I'm not good at the world. Mr. Magoo. Yes. Uh, Mr. Magoo is a is some I don't know what that character is. That's from a Oh, you don't know that character. No. Um I that's another problem. See, I I often use uh, comparisons that people other people don't know. Um he's a character who in in cartoons uh used to uh 
uh, he would uh, constantly bump into things he couldn't see very well, and he didn't understand what, what the world, what was going on in the world. And um, he was funny, you know, a funny character because he just couldn't adjust. And that's who I am in many ways. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you, Tom. Uh, the the Magooey part of you and just the uh, the caring part of you. Really well, I've enjoyed it. talking with you too, Tammy. Thomas Moore has created several audio programs with Sounds True over the past two decades, including a six-part series on soul life and a program on creativity, as well as a program on meaningful work. And coming up beginning October 28th, Sounds True will be hosting a three-part online event series on the gifts of a dark night, and that's something I'm looking forward to and I think will be of great benefit for everyone who tunes in beginning on October 28th. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.